tonight's reading is Luke 2, verses 1 to 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The word of the Lord. Well, the texts are uh, swirling around our family uh, group texts uh, about when we will go see Star Wars. That is uh, <laughs> one of our big traditions. Um, and I, is Baby Yoda in Star Wars? Or is that just the Mandalorian? Oh, no? Okay, okay. Well, we're kind of getting into this whole Star Wars thing. We like it. And I... Okay, that's right, Alfred. You're right. Well, I have a hunch that Star Wars will begin with the words, in a galaxy far, far away. And it's the author's way of telling us what kind of story he's going to tell us. Uh, he's saying this is a fantasy, this is a myth, this is a, a beautiful story and I want you to suspend your belief, it didn't really happen, I want you to kind of be swept away in this alternative universe and use your imagination. When Luke tells us the story of the birth of Jesus, he begins in a very different way. He begins with a very specific historical event that we find in many ancient historical documents, the census of Caesar Augustus. And it's Luke's way of saying, hey, what I'm about to tell you really happened. It's not a fable, it's history. I'm gonna tell you about how Jesus was born in Bethlehem in part because of an oppressive tax policy. And he wants us to see that the events of salvation history, the way that God rescues the world, goes in and through and in spite of the political and military history of the day. And since Luke makes the actions of Augustus the driving force behind this scene, I thought we would take a little time this year to try to understand what was happening. Um, Augustus was about 65 years old when Jesus was born. Rome had gone through a civil war 30 years earlier after Julius Caesar had been murdered. Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. He emerged as a hero during this time of political unrest. He defeated all the enemies of Rome and people began to say, you are our Prince of Peace. He was hailed actually as a savior of the people. And when his emissaries went out and declared what he'd done, they called this the gospel, the good news of salvation. Eventually, Augustus would be called the son of God. Savvy politically, Augustus realized that he 
had to provide for uh, three groups of Roman citizens, senators, normal people, and soldiers. And this was no small thing. And so to keep the people happy, he decided he would give out free grain each month and sponsor free gladiatorial games. And historians call this the policy of bread and circuses. And historians estimate that every month, the empire fed 670,000 Roman citizens for free. Roman soldiers had served well, and so Augustus provided them all land grants and monthly salaries. And Augustus also had to keep the wealthy senators happy. He had to provide a steady stream of slave labor. If he didn't keep them happy and the economy humming, he would lose his job or his head. And then finally, part of his strategy was to go into the conquered territories and do massive public works projects like roads and baths and houses and temples because he thought that would appease the people. So you might imagine that there was an incredible price tag for all of these bills. How would he pay for it? Well, he came up with a very innovative fiscal policy that involved heavily taxation of the conquered territories. And uh, this would have been the Roman Empire at the time, roughly at the time of Jesus' birth. And, and you can see that it expanded uh, quite a bit across the known world. And what Augustus decided to do was, instead of just retire the soldiers in Rome, he would give them free land all across the empire, and that would keep people in place. And then he would set up governors and tax collectors over all the different regions uh, that Rome now ruled and, and tax them. And boy, did they tax them. Um, they taxed your land. They taxed your animals. They taxed your slaves. They taxed your property. They taxed your city's property. And then they would levy special taxes when they needed a little more to build things. And so you might imagine that this was a great burden on the conquered peoples. Now, Jerusalem had been conquered about 60 years earlier, and the Jews who wanted to be free had resisted uh, Rome, and Rome installed Herod to keep them into place. Uh, now, of all the Roman governors, Herod loved building things more than anybody else. And the way he funded his building campaigns was by levying even more taxes on the peoples of Galilee, Samaria, and Judea. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, the religious leaders of Israel had another tax, which they called a tithe, to fund the temple and the priests. So you were paying taxes to the, to the church or the temple, you're paying taxes to Herod, you're paying taxes to Caesar. Here's a description of, of where a lot of people in the empire were at that time. Uh, the demand to pay taxes to Rome and taxes to Herod, in addition to the tithes, tithes paid to the temple and priesthood, dramatically escalated the economic pressures on peasant producers, whose livelihood was perennially marginal at best. After decades of multiple demands from multiple layers of rulers, many village families fell increasingly into debt and were faced with the loss of their family inheritance and land. The impoverishment of families led to the disintegration of village communities, the fundamental social form of an agrarian society. 
These are precisely the deteriorating conditions that Jesus addresses in the Gospels, impoverishment, hunger, and debt. Now, the official who administered Rome's tax policy was a powerful Roman general named P. Sulpicius Quirinius. And Herod had made a mess of things in Judea, so Augustus sacked him, and he sent Quirinius to take his place, and he sent him with 20,000 extra troops, who most of them would have been uh, centurions that dressed like this. And so these soldiers uh, would have been swarming uh, all over uh, Palestine, and Mary and Joseph would have been very familiar with them in their city. Now, a little bit about Quirinius. He had distinguished himself in battle. He fought with Augustus in Spain. He later defeated several rebel armies who tried to overthrow the empire. And he became one of the premier generals in the whole Roman world. And Augustus thought so much of him that he awarded him a triumph. And a, a Roman triumph, I think we have a painting of that, um, was a rare honor. Few generals received it. It was a spectacular victory celebration through the streets of Rome for the Republic's greatest warriors. The victor would ride through the streets in a massive chariot pulled by four horses and surrounded by the warriors he defeated in battle. And by the way, uh, Paul's referring to a Roman triumph in Colossians 2.15 when he says this of Jesus' victory on the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Mary and Joseph were living under one of Rome's greatest, harshest generals. Uh, Quirinius was unlucky in love. He married, then divorced, married again, uh, divorced, accused his wife of poisoning him and practicing witchcraft. She was a powerful, popular woman. Her trial ended when the women shouted down the judges and she was never found guilty. The Jews hated Quirinius and hated paying Rome's oppressive taxes. And a revolt broke out. A handful of Jews created an army and decided they weren't going to take it anymore. And these freedom fighters were called zealots. And when we come to the Gospels, uh, we'll see that the zealots were still active in Palestine. But most Jews were just trying to figure out a way to stay alive amidst grinding poverty. And this would include Mary and Joseph. Now, they, they likely found out about the census like this. Uh, Joseph was probably working an hour up the road in Sephoris on one of Herod's building projects. And one night after walking home from work, Mary may have said, a Roman centurion came into the village today and posted a decree on the door of the synagogue. Everyone has to register for the census. And there might have been dozens or hundreds of soldiers accompanying uh, the decree. And everyone knew that you had to obey it, that you would be, be killed if you did not. Now, Joseph's family, the family of David, was from Bethlehem. And so they had to go to their hometown to register. Now, we don't know if when, when Mary and Joseph knew they were going to give birth to their son in Bethlehem, we don't know if they remembered Micah's prophecy or not. 
This is the prophecy in Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. What we do know is that they had to go or they'd be put to death. Now, travel in ancient Palestine was demanding and, and very deadly, uh, probably about a 90-mile walk uh, from the northern highlands of Galilee to Bethlehem in the south. And they would have gone uh, around the flatlands uh, near the Jordan River and then west over the hills surrounding Jerusalem on the way down to Bethlehem. Uh, they would have gone uh, through the Judean desert in the winter. Uh, you might notice that when people go to the Holy Land, they don't go in the winter uh, because it's cold and it's raining. The highs often are just in the 30s during the day. Uh, they would likely have worn heavy woolen cloaks uh, constructed to shed rain and snow. Uh, they probably had long robes underneath them, belted at the waist, socks that we can think of like tube-like socks and enclosed shoes protected the feet. Now, one of the most terrifying dangers in ancient Palestine was there was a heavily forested valley all the way down uh, the Jordan River. Lions and bears lived in the woods, and travelers had to fend off wild boars. Um, archaeologists have unearthed documents warning travelers of the forest dangers. And there was also always the chance of bandits and robbers. So probably the couple um, walked with a caravan. It probably took them, given her pregnancy, at least nine days to make the trip. They would have brought their own provisions uh, carrying water and wineskins with a little bit of bread and oil to go with it. And of course, as we know, Bethlehem was overcrowded when they got there, so Mary gave birth outdoors. Now, Luke's telling of the birth of Jesus is short and without detail. Why does he spend two of the seven verses telling us the name of the Roman leaders and describing the tax policy. And this is really the point that I think uh, we can draw tonight. I think what Luke is doing is contrasting the kingdom of Rome with the kingdom of God. Yes, Augustus calls himself the son of God, and he rules from a palace in Rome. But the true son of God has been born in a manger in the backwoods of the empire. Yes, the great warrior Augustus calls himself the Prince of Peace. But the real Prince of Peace will assault evil from a cross, not a chariot. And yes, Roman orators celebrated the gospel of Augustus, the good news that he had won peace. But Jesus' followers will celebrate an even greater gospel, that the Son of God has died on a cross and defeated Satan and opened a way into the kingdom of heaven for all of us. Now, I want to end by just uh, uh, reflecting for a moment on where we are as a church as we end Advent. And I, I know we have many guests here tonight. We're so glad you're here. We're getting ready 
to move next year, we will have a, a long period of discernment uh, where you will be very involved. And what, what Paige and I, as we've talked about our preaching as a congregation, what, what we're going to do, and uh, I'll be doing this series particularly, is we're going to study the parables in the winter up till Lent. And the reason why is because the parables are stories Jesus tells to describe the strange ways of the kingdom of God and how different those ways are from the kingdom of Caesar. And I'd encourage you to be praying for this time for us as a congregation. And I encourage you to, to invite the Holy Spirit to sanctify your imagination and as we sit in these Jesus stories about what the kingdom of God is like, let the Holy Spirit ignite your imagination as we start to dream together about what it could like, be like to watch the kingdom of God break in in this new neighborhood that we'll be ministering in. And also, ask the Holy Spirit to challenge us and show us where are we thinking and operating more in the language of the kingdom of Caesar than in the language of the kingdom of God? You see, that's really the point, I think, of, of Luke giving so much attention to the political context here, is he's contrasting the kingdom of God with the kingdom of Caesar, and he's saying, even though nobody knew it in Rome, the kingdom of God was being born in the backwaters of the Roman Empire and a revolution had begun. Now, in times like the ones that we're, we're in, in America right now and in our world right now, you know, sometimes it can be hard to believe that God is involved at all or that he cares at all or that he is doing anything at all. But I think the point of this, of this story of Luke is to say that the God of history was using flawed political leaders and all the things that were going on in the Roman Empire and in and with and in spite of the evil that was being committed in this empire the fulfillment of prophecy was occurring. And God was actually using tax policy designed to oppress people to arrange so that Jesus could fulfill the Bethlehem prophecy. I know it's hard to believe that right now. It's hard to believe that for me. Next week, we're going to have a really interesting service. It's the end of the year. It's called Examine. And uh, we're going to look back a little bit at where we found God and where we, what we found really draining in the past. And I was doing a little work on that myself this week. And honestly, the, the most draining part of my last year was just simply living in our country. I, I just find it so painful and there are moments when I look at this and I say, I believe everything this says. I believe you're at work 
God even now in small invisible ways to break in the kingdom of God and continue this great rescue project, but sometimes it's hard to see it. And sometimes it seems like you've forgotten us. And then I began to think of the last 10 days. And I began to think of just a couple of conversations that I had that reminded me of the quiet ways the kingdom of God breaks in and through when the people of God say yes. I think of uh, Sandy and I going to the opening of the Old City Performing Arts Center uh, about a week and a half ago. And then this dream that Josh and Amelia had has now become a reality in this, in this beautiful building and, and they're offering art and making it open to folks that can't afford it and, and all sorts of wonderful things are happening because they said yes. And then the next night I went to the opening of the Haslam Sansom uh, facility in Lonsdale. And, and, and this incredible sports facility with soccer fields and a healthcare clinic fa- funded by Cherokee Health is now right in the middle of a neighborhood that used to have no access to either. Because a lot of people said yes. Then I think about a, a man who came in and said, I, I don't know quite what I'm called to do, but I have a vision for uh, lending money to small businesses in East Knoxville and trying to empower uh, business leaders there. Then I thought of another man that came in and said, you know, I don't know why, I found myself at the Gay Pride Parade giving out dad hugs. And uh, I, th- I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that, but I'm called uh, to care uh, for uh, my gay friends and neighbors. Then I think of another man who came in and he said, you know, the food desert in our city is a tragedy. Uh, I would like to find some ways to work with uh, Reverend Battle, and I would like to find some ways to develop urban farms and I'd like to find some ways to get fresh produce to people that have to eat Cheetos on their budget. And then another young man came in and he said, "Uh, I know we're moving. I have a real heart for the homeless. I'm not sure what to do about it, but do you think that uh, we could get some people together and start praying about our new neighbors? So those are six examples from the last nine days. Are any of them going to make CNN? No. They won't even make the paper. And you wouldn't know it if it did because none of you read it. (laughs) (laughs) The way the kingdom breaks in is in mangers, in food stalls, with pregnant 14-year-olds and weary carpenters. It's small stuff. So if you are struggling to find hope this Christmas, and if the headlines are tearing away at the fabric of your soul, as they are mine, I would encourage you to ask this question. God, what have you told me to say yes to? And as you respond to that, you will find hope. 